Welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. My name's Kai, and I'm joined, as always, in the studio with Katriona. How you doing, Kat? Hiya, I'm good, thanks. How are you going? Pretty good. And we've also got a guest that rocks, some might say. It's Hayden, <laughs> the rock guy. Good afternoon. How are we doing? Pretty good. good. Also known as Dr. Rock as well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take anything. Uh, and as you might have guessed, our topic for today is rocks. So, Katriona, have you got a favourite rock? I do. I was in um, Canberra at the National Youth Science Forum, actually, and I uh, went on a fossil dig. And so I you know, got a little rock out of a pile, a massive pile, cracked it open, and there was like a little fossil inside. Oh, and I got cool. to take it home. So that's my favourite rock. Do you know what sort of fossil like maybe not species but like what sort of thing it was trilobite Ooh, is trilobite. that a thing a yeah one. okay yeah. cool cool yeah, they're cool yeah, hayden's cool. legitimized that <laughs> <laughs> uh hayden what's your favorite rock uh, mine is a piece of the mantle that yeah. i got from uh western victoria on a field trip that i taught on um, for the second years it's bright green so you might cool. not know about the inside of the earth that's made of green minerals not like orange or red like you might see in a textbook oh. and the rock is called peridotite Cool. Very cool. Yeah. So textbooks are wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite rock is zebra rock, which I got from um, like the Kimberley in Western Australia. It's yeah, it's called zebra rock because it's really stripy, and like if you cut it and polish it up, you get some really cool patterns in there. And yeah, very 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 cool looking. And yeah. It sounds pretty. It's pretty nice. No- yeah, it, it is very pretty. Um, you see ones that people have like put real effort into, you know, polishing them up, and they look amazing. Um, yeah. All right. Well, before we get into more rock talk, we're going to have some news. So, Katriona, you want to start off this? Yeah. Well, I'm going to start off with a little bit of a song. <laughs> a spoonful of music can help the medicine go down. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, well, while we listen to our favorite songs, that's you know, like a little bit of a mood booster. Like there are certain songs that I listen to and I'm just like, I feel happy now. Yeah. I don't know about you, but... No, um, definitely. Yeah. So researchers at Michigan State University have discovered that m- listening to music as like an intervention in hospitals and things mm. can make medicines more effective. Wow. So studying the effects of m- music listening interventions is what they call it, but essentially just listening to music... Um, <laughs> They were looking at it particularly in chemotherapy-induced nausea, so one of the big mm-hmm. side... Well, there are lots of big side effects for chemotherapy, but um, one is that mm. people often feel quite nauseated. Yeah. Um, so it's it's actually not a stomach condition, interestingly. So pain and anxiety are both kind of a neurological phenomena and, and they're sort of interpreted in the brain um, as kind of like this state of pain and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually like in the stomach you're feeling bad. It's coming from your brain. It's all in your head. It's Yeah, it's all <laughs> in your head. Um, so it's a neurological thing. So there was this small pilot study that included only 12 patients, but, you know, it's, it's a start. Yeah. Um, and they're all undergoing chemotherapy treatment and they agreed to listen to their favourite music for 30 minutes each time they felt the need to take their anti-nausea medication. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did both. Like they took their meds and they mm. also listened to the music. And it worked. Um, there was like this reduction in the ratings of patients' severity of nausea. Like obviously it's it's 
you know, kind of a self-rating, but, you know, they, they appeared to feel better yep. um, and their distress seemed to be reduced as well. So, you know, that's good. Although it's difficult to sort of isolate, oh, it was because of the music rather than it was, you know, simply because of the medicine because they were mm-hmm. taking medications too and maybe it was just doing its job. But it did seem like it was increasing the benefit of yeah, okay. the medicine. Um, plus there's like actually kind of something to this. Cause when we listen to music, our brain fires like all sorts of neurons, like the, all these connections going like, yay, music. <laughs> um, so one thing that is affected is serotonin. Now serotonin is the major neurotransmitter that causes chemotherapy induced nausea. Right. And um, cancer patients often are taking medications that block serotonin's effects. Um, so, you know, you're, you're stopping that, that, chem, that, that nausea. Mm-hmm. Um, but during another study, researchers found that patients who listen to pleasant music experience the lowest <laughs> levels. Music? <laughs> <laughs> music that's nice to them. Um, they, they had the lowest levels of serotonin. So it, it indicates that, you know, oh, if you listen to music, you know, maybe you reduce those, those serotonin levels. Um, so it's preventing you from, you know, getting that nausea. So, you know, maybe in 10 to 20 years, wouldn't it be neat if you could just like, you know, listen to 10 minutes of your favorite music while you're having medicine and it will make your medicine much better. Oh, that's pretty good. Hmm. Yeah. What were the songs? Did they publish the songs? I'm curious to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been like to each individual's taste. So right. it's just they like prescribed. No. So for each of the twelve <laughs> patients, it was your favorite song. You pick a song. You stick yeah, with okay. that one. Oh. Yeah. I hope in like the supplementary material they list what their favorite yeah. songs were because that mm. that'd be pretty funny. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, I got some news as well. And to start off, I want you to imagine a flame. Mm-hmm. Like it's th- look at it flickering. It might be like a candle or a fireplace or something. And you've got this dancing flame. Now I want you to think about how can you stop it from flickering, and. That's exactly what some scientists from Japan have tried to figure out. And this is pretty, it's kind of weird. Like, why do you want to do this? Often we think candle flames, like it's romantic because mm. it's flickering. Mm. and Mesmerizing. It's, yeah, that's it. But so, when it's on a birthday cake, you're like, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so the scientists are like, let's try and stop it from flickering. We want to get a really, you know, still flame. Mm-hmm. And the reason you might want to do this is because it turns out that a flickering flame doesn't burn as efficiently as a still one. And this is pretty important because a lot of industrial processes use gas burners. And if you're burning gas inefficiently, Mm. like that's just wasting energy and it's polluting more. It creates more soot than a well-burning flame. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at, okay, how can we stop these flames from flickering? And they found out that if you have two flames next to each other, like you often do in, you know, a gas burner or something, that the distance separating them affects how they flicker. So it turns out that if you have closely spaced flames, that they're like they flicker in sync because the turbulence from like the heat that's coming off them interacts with the one next to it and like they dance together, which (laughs) you watch little videos of them and they, you know, they got these flames and they're flicking flickering in sync, which looks really, really cool. And it turns out if you move them far enough apart, eventually they'll get like out of sync but not just random, like actually oppositely. So when one is like flickering bright, the other one flickers dim. So it's really cool that there's this interaction between the neighboring flames. And it turns out that because it like transitions from them being in sync to being out of sync, somewhere in the middle is like the critical point. The sweet spot. The sweet spot where they don't flicker at all. Mm -hmm. And the scientists were trying to figure out where this sweet spot was and Unfortunately, just putting the two flames at the sweet spot, it still doesn't work for a very long time. Like it starts off 
not flickering, but then eventually instabilities sort of get in and they start to flicker eventually. But they found out that if you can move the flame, so imagine your little gas burner is like moving and the two flames are moving further apart and closer together kind of quickly, you can like move it about this sweet spot really fast and that like that makes it still work. So because you're always moving into the sweet spot, that means you're always setting up the right conditions so that it's not going to flicker. So you've got to oscillate your little burner thing. Yeah, so instead of the flame itself flickering and dancing, you're yeah. actually, like, dancing the little burner mm-hmm. back and forth, which, yeah. like, it's pretty cool that this works. But apart from just it looking cool, it's pretty important to understand how these combustion processes work. As I said, a lot of industrial processes still use combustion. And if we want to try and make them a little bit more efficient, it's pretty important that we, you know, understand how these processes work. And the other thing that I also think is really cool is that instabilities in combustion are really important in things like rocket engines. Mm. So mm-hmm. I think rockets are pretty cool. And if Rockets you... are amazing. <laughs> rockets rock. That's it. And nice today's one. episode all about <laughs> rocks. Um, yeah, so I thought that was pretty cool. Mm. All right. Well, let's get into our first song. And this is We Will Rock You by Queen. Welcome back to Radio Silence on Radio Fodder, where we are bringing science into focus. That was We Will Rock You by Queen. And hopefully it was a song that, you know, was pleasant and (laughs) (laughs) helped you take medicine or whatever. Um, But we're actually moving on from those news stories because today we've got Dr. Rock or Hayden here (laughs) with us because we're talking all about rocks. So, Hayden, you study kimberlites, right? So so what exactly are they? They're a special type of rock. Um, they're from volcanoes. It's a volcanic rock. Um, they are the deepest derived um, magmas on Earth. So they have their origins really deep within the Earth compared to other volcanoes. Mm-hmm. So deep they can transport diamonds. Ooh. So, so, uh, <laughs> so every diamond that you've seen um, in a jewelry store or um, in some earrings or, or whatever has mm-hmm. come from a kimberlite. Oh, yeah. um, they're, the, they're the only rock or um, volcanic rock really that's capable of transporting them from these depths to the surface, mm-hmm. which makes them super unique. Um, but also they're very rare. Um, you might have seen in Hawaii, for example, that there's volcanoes happening all the time, or mm-hmm. even in like South America or, or Bali, but these eruptions don't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really know why that is, but that does contribute to diamonds being so rare. Mm. Are they are they actually rare? Like, because you know there are all those stories about like, oh, the diamonds aren't. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. marketing ploy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that. I'm sure that comes into it. I can't speak too much to that. But, and there are certain companies that have a monopoly on the mm. industry, mm-hmm. but those eruptions that transport them, they are definitely rare. There right. hasn't been one for about thirty thousand years. Wow. So wow. I guess you could say that modern geologists or modern humans haven't observed one of these eruptions. Yeah. So, okay. um, so it's not like the diamond companies are just waiting for the next one. <laughs> no. They're still, they're still trying to find the old ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's their job. So yeah. are you? does that suggest that like not all of them have been found? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there mm. are definitely um, places that are still being explored. Um, lots of new discoveries are being found in um, Canada mm-hmm. um, and Russia under the ice. Mm. Um, which makes them challenging to investigate. Mm. Um, I don't really study the diamonds so much. I more look at the the volcanic rock itself. Um, But it is really interesting to know that these searches are ongoing. And maybe one day in in our lifetime, lifetime there could be an eruption Mm. that actually has these things, but we're we're still waiting. We'll cross our fingers, but maybe we won't hold our breaths for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so does that, has that like taken you all over the world then, like to study? Um, yeah, uh, my my samples for my research came from Finland, um, which Ooh. isn't really known for its diamond mining, for example. <laughs> no. But um, they have uh, kimberlites there. I've also been to uh, Botswana. Um, for a conference for a week, which was an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Southern Africa seems to be the hotspot for these um, eruptions in Earth history. Mm-hmm. So um, lots of diamonds and there's lots of interest from uh, industries and also mm-hmm. from geoscientists too. Yeah, I've been to other places um, for other conferences, but I guess in terms of diamond-focused or my Kimberlite-focused research, it's been Finland and Botswana yeah. so far. So what makes yeah. these places like a hotspot for Kimberlites? You have to have a special type of um, uh, conditions, I suppose. So you need to have a continent that's really old and thick. Mm-hmm. Um, so continents on Earth have varying levels of, of thickness. So Australia is really an old continent, billions of years old. Mm. And so um, in northwest of Australia, in the Kimberley, in a place called Argyle, there was, there was a diamond mine. We had pink diamonds mm-hmm. were very common. Mm-hmm. That part of the continent was the right conditions, the right thickness of, of crust. Um, for the diamonds to have formed, but also for these um, for these magmas to have formed beneath the continent to come through, and sort of yep. think of the eruptions as like conveyor belts. The diamonds are kind of have been there for billions of years, just waiting, mm. and they only get brought to the surface by these um, eruptions. Mm-hmm. So most diamonds that we we find have been around for billions of years, just sort of sitting at the bottom of the earth, <laughs> just waiting, waiting for its turn to be waiting for their the, time to shine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So there's something about the, the age of the continent that's important. They're only mm-hmm. found in old parts of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, New Zealand, which is a very young part of Earth's crust, don't, doesn't have diamonds or these eruptions, whereas older parts like um, Australia, Russia, Canada, parts of Africa have the right conditions. And also mm. the, um, the magma has to rise really quickly because mm. it rises too slowly. It actually um, doesn't make it to the surface and it just dissolves the diamond essentially. Um, so we know they must come to the surface really quickly and be Mm -hmm. super explosive so if we did observe one in modern times we'd know about it because it would be enormous on the scale eruptions that we probably we don't really see now yeah Um, and and defined quick because I know sometimes like you talk about a geological time scale (laughs) it's like quite slow so (laughs) yeah so we think on the the scale of um, hours to days which is quick compared to things um, that take millions of years yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) eruptions that happen in Hawaii where we see lots of lava flowing quite slowly yeah they probably come to the surface Mm. on the scale of weeks months years Mm -hmm. right um but they, that happens over millions of years continuously. Mm. Whereas these things come up mm. once and they're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is part of the, the sort of rarity of these eruptions, you said that these only happen in like old continents yeah. tend to yeah. be more geological sta- geologically stable. Like Australia doesn't is not known for its volcanic eruptions. Yeah. Stability is really important. Okay. So these, these, they're called cratons, these old parts of continents that have been around for billions of years and kind of been untouched mm. by other tectonic uh, influences. Mm-hmm. So just... We can trust them to be there forever, basically. <laughs> um, and the stability contributes to their, to their thickness, which is what we need to make diamonds. Because yep. diamonds are formed below 150 kilometers depth in the crust, wow. which is very deep mm. um, and very hot. So anywhere from there down is where we know that diamonds can form rather than graphite, which is not as fun to look at. <laughs> um, it's good for making pencil. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, other than that, not so useful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny that you mentioned the Kimberley region in Western Australia, like yeah. Kimberlites. It comes from the same word, I believe. That's right. So it comes from um, the Kimberley in South Africa, though, a different, yeah. different, a different Kimberley. Mm. But that's where the name is derived from because mm-hmm. um, that was kind of the first area of, I guess, intense exploration for these rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and since then it's kind of proliferated around the world, really. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I guess the Kimberley in Australia was named after that Kimberley. I'm not sure, <laughs> but it's a possibility. Um, so what is it that you've been researching with these rocks? So I've been really curious to know when the eruptions occurred. Mm-hmm. So there weren't, it wasn't yesterday. I know it was sometime <laughs> in, in the ancient past. And, and so I used different techniques to work out the age of the eruption. Mm-hmm. But also I was looking at whereabouts it comes from inside the earth. So different parts of yep. the earth's interior have like a different chemical flavor. Mm. So... I can tell if it's come from, you know, right at the top of the Earth's um, mantle or deeper down, mm-hmm. etc. So I use I use geochemistry. So I'm like a, a chemist for rocks, basically. <laughs> and I use different chemical elements to tell me different things about, you know, its source region, but also its age using um, isotopes, which decay yep. from one thing to another over a certain period of time. And that can tell us the age of the eruption. And so in this mm-hmm. case, the eruptions in Finland were sometimes around 750 million years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, 600 million years ago was the, the, two, the two options. So there was two different pulses of magnetism in that region. Right. And so I was able to work that out by applying these different techniques. Um, I also looked at the rocks, look at their minerals mm. that are inside them, because that can tell you how the magma has changed as it's gone from its source to the surface. Because mm-hmm. across those hours to days on its way up, mm. it, can, it can change composition, it can evolve, because it has to go through so much of the earth to get to the right. top. Mm. That changes its composition. So I also investigated that as well. So yeah, lots of different chemistry involved, but the the takeaway points, I suppose, were the the, the times I just mentioned that yep. when it was erupted, but also um, its origin has to had to have been really deep within the Earth based on its chemistry, and it had to have input from somewhere else on Earth. So it's got this kind of weird flavor that's not known for that region. So something else had to have been put into its source region to give it this kind of weird chemical flavor, and it's something called subduction, which is when one one part of the Earth's crust goes beneath right. um, oh, yeah. another plate, goes yep. beneath it, and that causes like uh, earthquakes and volcanoes. But eventually the, the crust that goes down and down and reaches the, the deep Earth, that gets mixed up, and it creates this kind of um, melting pot, really, of different um, chemistries that we can detect. Yep. So it's like not supposed to be there mm. if it was like a pure source, <laughs> but we can tell this other part of the Earth has got its way down there and kind of contaminated it mm-hmm. with its own chemical so flavor. Something that used to be on the surface. Or it's the way down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah, hundreds cool. of kilometers um, deep inside the earth. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So in terms of like the, the changes as things come up, like what sorts of changes are they? Like do, do they get things added onto them as they're traveling through different materials coming up? Or exactly, like is yeah. Or like the pressure sort of changes them? So it's, um, the word we use is assimilation, which is using uh, other term, other, yeah. other context. But we mean that it's taking on foreign pieces of rock on its way to the surface. And because the magma is hot, mm. it kind of partially dissolves. It kind of chews it up yeah. in some ways. And whatever it's going through, whatever it's chewing up, that chemistry gets added into it as well. Okay. Brings so it lot, along for the ride. Lots of complex <laughs> processes. So when we get the kimberlite at the surface and we're holding it in a hand, if we're seeing diamonds that don't belong there, they've just mm. been transported. We're seeing parts of the crust that don't belong there. Yeah. And other pieces of the mantle that have just been brought up for the ride too. So the kind of... To look at a Kimberlite, honestly, they're not very pretty to look at because they're kind of like, <laughs> it's just got come from so far down inside the earth on its way to the surface, it's grabbed junk from everywhere. Mm. And so they're kind of this hodgepodge mix of other pieces that don't belong yeah. within the magma, that didn't come from the magma. Yeah. Um, but it makes them super useful because mm. it's the only way we can actually get stuff from that deep. Yeah. We can't Because we can't drill. No. Yeah. 150, 150 kilometers. <laughs> yeah. The deepest hole that humans have ever drilled is only 12 kilometers. Wow. wow. So we've got a long way to go, which is why these rocks are, are super useful, right? Think of them as like our plumbing system to get yeah. down there. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, cool. So I guess that's like one kind of volcanic activity, but you've kind of moved on to other volcanic activity or that's right. looking at volcanoes in another way, right? But yeah, so now I'm looking um, at more recent um, activity in Kenya. Mm-hmm. So um, Africa, I guess, is famous for where humans um, originated. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at eruptions in Kenya that contain um, bones of our ancestors. Wow. So like they're called hominins. So yes. um, ancient humans, yep. sort of around 4 million years to sort of 2 million years. Mm-hmm. So Homo erectus, you might have heard of that. Mm-hmm. Um and I guess the relatives of, of that species. So these bones are found within layers of ash, mm-hmm. and we can't date the bones themselves, unfortunately. And so what we do is we date the volcanic ash that contains those bones, mm-hmm. right. then, yeah. and then we can tell the archaeologists or the anthropologists that this bone from Homo erectus was 2.1 million years old or 3.3 million years old, and from there they kind of construct their, their human evolution tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of this work has been done in the past because we obviously know about human evolution now. But mm. what we're doing is refining the ages mm. right. because mm-hmm. plus or minus a few thousand years is super important on their timescales, on, on human evolution yeah. timescales. So we're refining everything with more modern techniques. Okay. Um, so to do that, we go to we go to Kenya and we take lots of samples, um, chuck them on a plane with us, bring them, <laughs> bring them back here. <laughs> Um, with permission, of course. Here's my hominin buddies just like, yeah. on the seat next to me. He's got a plane full of rocks. Yeah, yeah so. With um, bones. <laughs> we don't take the bones, of oh, course. Okay. Yeah, so we leave it to the archaeologists and the anthropologists who are, are trained to deal with their toothbrushes to mm, you know, yeah. carefully mm-hmm. extract them. Mm-hmm. We take the rocks away. Yeah. Um, and then we bring them to our lab to do all of the, the geochemistry and the dating work on them. And then we just report it to the community afterwards. Yeah. And from there, they kind of make their own inferences in terms of what that means for evolution. Mm-hmm. So we do the geology, they do the cool stuff with the, with the humans. <laughs> I mean, you're doing pretty cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we work with a great team. So there's a research institute um, in Kenya that have like a group of, you know, they've got the archaeologists, they've got the anthropologists, they've got the geologists, and we kind of all work together to make this complete story. Mm. We couldn't yeah. do it just with, without knowledge alone. Mm. We'd yeah. have to become experts in everything, <laughs> which we're not capable of doing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's an amazing experience to go to this remote part of Africa where we know that all of us came from, yeah. Mm. You know, at the start, at the start, um, and kind of contribute to that knowledge using stuff for, for geology. You know, we're kind of repurposing um, our yeah. skill set to, to help further our, I guess, knowledge about human existence, which is pretty cool. Mm. So, is it more that like more recent volcanic activity is uh, bringing this stuff up, or it's you know, like sort of all the the ash and everything has just kind of preserved everything for, for yeah? So like you to find, we don't really think that the that the eruption kind of like led to the person's death they were probably yeah. the bones were already there yeah yeah but the the flow of ash right like got swept up yeah um the bones got swept up in that and so we know that the because of the layers are so thin mm. that whatever age we get for that that layer with the bone and it's probably pretty close to when that person died mm. yeah um which it seems quite grim to talk about <laughs> um but that's what we have to work with um yeah yeah yeah, so we take out these little uh, crystals that are within the, the ash layers, mm-hmm. and then we, we date those to give the age for that mm. layer, for example. Um, so it's not quite the situation with Pompeii where you've got, like, the, preserved people. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was what everyone thinks about, right? They yeah. think about these yeah. fossilised people, mm. but um, it's, it's more just you might see a jawbone. Mm-hmm. So when we were there last, um, last year, uh, some archaeologists found a jawbone of a, a new species, which is pretty cool. They also found footprints. So they gradually took off this layer, layer by layer. They're very methodical, mm. Mm. Um, which is amazing to watch. It's painstaking work. <laughs> and they, re- they revealed footprints that showed 
a hominin running for the first time because the oh. gate was so elongated. Yeah. yeah and so okay. it was either chasing something or being chased <laughs> by like a saber-toothed tiger or who knows what, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just cool to be at that sort of forefront where we're just, wow. we're not the experts in that region, but just seeing all of it, their excitement gets us excited yeah. too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, you've certainly made me excited about kimberlites and, and diamonds and all these sorts of things. I didn't really care much for diamonds before, but like well, now, <laughs> now I'm like, oh. <laughs> so uh, speaking of, this is Diamonds by Rihanna, and we'll be back with more rock stuff later. You're listening to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. And today we're talking all about rocks, and you just heard Diamonds by Rihanna and Catriona. What are you going to tell us about? Well, Hayden was talking about igneous rocks, so... Um, That's correct. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I did some homework. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about sedimentary rock because, like, you know, I'm totally sedimentary, like, you know, lazy person. <laughs> sedentary or something? Yeah, I know. I was, I was trying to get a pun in there. Okay, uh, didn't work. I see where you're going. I'll pay it. <laughs> Um, I should have said, lay it on us. Uh, <laughs> oh, that would have worked. <laughs> it would have. Uh, anyway. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, so rocks are in this cycle of, of constantly being eroded and transported and then re- reformed and reshaped, um, especially because we've got lots of things like wind, water and ice that are just relentlessly, I, I, I think it's quite poetic to think that they're just like sculpting the mm. Earth's yeah. surface. Yeah. <laughs> um, so many of the planet's most spectacular landscapes that were carved out um, as rocks were worn down and then fragments were kind of like washed away. Mm. So if you think of the 12 apostles, not that 12 is quite appropriate <laughs> anymore, um, or the Grand Canyon, like, you know, they, they, they were worn away over tens of millions of years. Like if you're thinking about the Grand Canyon, it was by the Colorado River and the winds mm. as they sort of whipped through. So this destruction provides the raw materials that form sedimentary rocks. Yeah. Um, and when the movement slows, those fragments sort of settle out into a layer that form sediment, hence mm-hmm. like the sedimentary. Um, so this destruction provides that. And then when the movement sort of slows, the fragments kind of settle out, settle out into that, that sediment. And then layers of that new sediment form on the seafloor and in lakes or on floodplains um, or form dunes. And then over time, these layers kind of compact and the grains are cemented together to form these rocks. So essentially, as the layers accumulate, they become compacted by the weight of layers above because you're just like yep. building and stacking more and more. on top. You're making the cake. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking like, you know, those, those like super thin layer cakes. Um, but as this happens, like water is kind of squeezed out of the layers and the temperature rises and grains within the sediment are kind of cemented together by chemical reactions to form harder rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and... If you think about one of the most famous and special rocks in Australia, and that might be like, you know, a little bit contentious, but, you know, one of the most famous, I guess, yep. rocks of Australia is Uluru. Yep. Um, and that's an epic 550 million year old story. Um, pretty old rock. Pretty, pretty old. Mm. Not as old as the stories that you, that you were talking about, Hayden, but, um, you know, still pretty old. It's pretty old. Pretty old. Um so it's, you know, like I said, a very long story, but the TLDR <laughs> is that it's a sedimentary rock made of sandstone that's been shaped by weathering and erosion. Yep. Um, so back then, so if you think of, you know, over 550 million years ago. Which isn't, which isn't hard to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like yeah. Pre-dinosaurs, right? Uh, yep, definitely pre-dinosaurs. Yeah. Pre-most life. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, back then, the Peterman Ranges to the west of Cutajuta um, were much taller than they are now. So, like, it was a massive mountain range that was hundreds of kilometres long and five kilometres high. So, more akin to the Himalayas than you know <laughs> what we find in Australia today. Um, so nowadays, a mountain range like that would be covered in vegetation. But as Hayden's just pointed out, not that much life was around. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is kind of pre lots of plants having evolved, especially land plants. Right. Um, so these mountains were probably bare. And bare mountains weather more quickly because they're exposed to the mm. rain and the wind. So rainwater flowed down the mountains, eroding the sand and the rock and like kind of just dropping it in big fan shapes on the plains below. And one fan um, was kind of mainly water, smoothed out rock, and the other one was mostly sand. So we've got like, essentially, if you think about it, stuff coming down or like matter coming down from these massive mountain ranges to form like two fan shaped like kind of rocks down below. Yeah. And as like lots of eroded rocks tumbled into the like turbid torrential water, they broke apart until you get like really fine grains of sand, mm. like the sand that we'd see now mm. at the bottom of a riverbed. So around 500 million years ago, like after it, all this had been dumped, mm. the whole area became covered in sea and sand and mud fell to the bottom and covered that seabed, including those fans. So those fans are like covered and the weight of that new seabed, so all the new mud that was on top, mm. turned those nice little fans into rock cool. and the, the sandy one became sandstone which mm -hmm. is what Uluru is today ah. and the rocky one became like the the Katajuta rock okay so, yeah that's how we get those two rocks wow um and 400 million years ago the sea disappeared and like also over time like and you know more about this but like you know things shift mm -hmm. <laughs> <A lot. laughs> yeah the tectonic plates shifted so um yeah, they were kind of once nicely aligned but um Katajuta like tilted slightly and Uluru tilted a whole 90 degrees so that's why they're not like you know how you would expect if it immediately came down from the okay. Peterman Ranges today mm. um and then, yeah, over the last 300 million years, the softer rocks have just eroded away, leaving the spectacular forms <laughs> behind that we see today. Um, so, you know, those are kind of like the, the big rocks that we can see and we can see how erosion can form these beautiful structures. But, but if you crack them open and look inside... Not necessarily these rock structures, but like if Please you take don't. no, no, definitely, definitely not these. But like some soft sedimentary rocks contain the ingredients that you need for minerals to crystallize. Uh. So, for example, pyrite, also known as fool's gold, because of its like metallic shine and pale brass yellow color, giving it that kind of that superficial resemblance to gold, but it's yeah. you know not gold. <laughs> um, and marcasite. I hope I'm saying those correctly. Both of those form crystals in mud that's rich in sulfur, hence the kind of yellowy mm, color, okay. um, plus iron and other organic matter. Um, so that that's how you can get some crystals and um, opals as well. You can crack open from some of these rocks. Um, so gem quality opals also form mainly in sedimentary rocks where the groundwater is rich in silica. And mm. as the water runs through the earth, it picks up some silica from sandstone and it carries this silica-rich solution into cracks and voids in the rock and as the water evaporates, it leaves behind silica mm. and that silica becomes opals. So just to give a bit more of an Australian flavour <laughs> to the story, um, apparently Australia produces 90% of the world's precious opal, wow. mainly okay. white opal. 
I like how they say like precious opal as well. Yeah, there's all that <laughs> boring. Opal. This is like gym quality stuff, yeah. you know, <laughs> good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also home to the most complete opalized dinosaur skeleton in the world. So like the shells and the bones of the dinosaurs with like marine reptiles have been replaced by precious opal. That's cool. It just sounds so beautiful. Cool. <laughs> and get some, some cool like um, seashells, mm. the kind of concentric circle ones. Yeah. Oh, Ammonites, yeah. they get filled with opal and it's spectacular. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So this is happening because the opals form in cavities within the rocks. So like, you know, if, if you've got in the same cavity, some of those bones and, and skeletons and things like you Mm. can get the opals inside too (laughs) um so if the cavity is there because there's like you know part of a living thing (laughs) for example like a bone or a shell or a pine cone if that was buried in the same sand or clay before it turned into stone then the opal can form a fossil replica of the object that was buried so as like the actual thing degrades you get an opal left behind and i think that's like quite beautiful (laughs) um and this leads me really nicely into the fact that fossils are typically found in sedimentary rock um and occasionally some other types of rocks too but that's that's mostly because they're already in locations where sediment is likely to bury them and shelter them from scavengers and and decay Mm -hmm. so if you think about it you know sedimentary rock comes from things settling Mm. down on top of other things and that's literally how you get a fossil (laughs) that's why they're so rare like only like i think it's something like one percent of all things that die get preserved because maybe less than that must be far less than that because yeah maybe it's it's like (laughs) 0.01 percent but it's because it's hard to preserve because if you don't have the right sort of rock yeah just get eaten by something or washed away before they get preserved we'll get tumbled down a river and they break up more yeah so there's so much of I guess, like Earth's history that we haven't captured in fossils because it's so hard to secure them. Mm. Yeah. Which, is, which is kind of wild that we can find them in volcanic deposits. We'll yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, when you, Hayden, when you first said that, like, you found remains from a volcano, I'm like, there's yeah. no way a person falling in a volcano could <laughs> yeah. be intact now. But yeah, yeah, they just got covered by some specks mm. of ash. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's, it's, um, you know, it's so rare, but I guess that's kind of the circle of life. Like the point is, you know, all these elements go into making us and then we return it to the earth sort of thing. <laughs> we're all just stardust, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, lo- oh, I love saying that, that we're just stardust. <laughs> born from the elements as, as, the, as the stars are forging them as they, they're born, they live, they die. Anyway, you know, rocks. Um, <laughs> so mudstone, shale, limestone, they're all examples of sedimentary rock that are likely to contain fossils. Um, Sometimes the fossils have actually been removed, leaving kind of moulds in the surrounding rock. And that's, you know, as I mentioned, sometimes where you can find the opals instead. Um, Or, you know, you can get like casts as well. But um, speaking of limestone, um, a fun fact that I recently learned is that the chalk that we used as kids is made of plankton skeletons. Yeah. Compressed into sediment. Oh, clearly, Hayden yeah, already knows a, it. That's a, a well-known fact amongst geologists. <laughs> so, like, yeah, it's, it's just plankton skeletons that have been compressed into sedimentary rock over millions of years. Chalk is an official rock name, not yeah. just the thing we write with. Yeah, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. Um, so it's calcium carbonate, if I'm correct, um, and, and the chalk layers of this very soft limestone, they're formed from the remains of coccolithophores. It's a type of marine phytoplankton um, with an intricate exoskeleton. So um, nowadays, most blackboard chalk is made from gypsum, but some varieties, not to name any brands, are still made from calcium carbonate. So those leftover exoskeletons that have like been mushed up, compressed and turned into rock. How is gypsum different or is it? 
Do we answer that one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's not made from dead. Um, okay, but like dead stuff. Chemically, is it similar or no? It's it's different. It's um, it's gypsum's made from dehydration of um, fluids as well. So it's mm. like an, an organic thing rather than being mm. organic matter, I right. guess, which is the okay. the case for chalk. Cool. Yeah. And probably easy to make on mass because it's probably just mass produced. I imagine mm. in some factory. Yeah. Otherwise, rather than you have it in like to like like, scrape off some chalk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe they dig it out of the ground still, or like. Um, then turn it into chalk, but like the process maybe is. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. Or there are like some cliffs as well, like um, particularly in the UK. Well, at least I know of yeah. at least one famous cliff in the UK where people collect chalk. Okay. Did. Yeah. White cliffs of Dover, maybe. I'm not mm. sure. Yeah. Could be there. Mm. Yeah. Um, you yeah, don't know how they make chalk now. If they if they still mine the gypsum, or if they just make it artificially, because right. probably just combine some some different chemicals and just. Chuck Turn it the handle and chuck, it all comes chuck, out. Chuck, chuck, chuck it in a pot, mix it up, and then evaporate it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Ta-da, chalk. <laughs> cool. All right, well, that's enough about sedimentary rocks. We're going to chuck on another song. This is Party Rock Anthem by LMFAO. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus on Radio Fodder. That was Party Rock Anthem by LMFAO, and... You know, we're partying hard talking about rocks today. So, Kai, what rocks are you going to tell us about? Well, I'm going to talk about a, a rock that I think is pretty cool and pretty useful. Um, we've heard about diamonds, and we know that they're very hard. I want to talk about another mineral that is also quite hard, and that's corundum. Mm. And it, if, if you've probably heard of its various different forms, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> it is a crystal form of aluminium oxide, and in its pure form, it's transparent. But if you have different impurities in it uh, and like different metals, for example, you can get lots of different colors. Mm-hmm. And like one famous color, if you add in chromium, you get red and that actually makes rubies. Mm. And when I discovered this, it kind of blew my mind a little bit that if you add in different impurities, not chromium, but a whole bunch of other things, you get sapphires. Yeah. And I was like, wow, rubies and sapphires are the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Same thing, but different. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was pretty blown away by that. And mm. yeah, you can get a, a range of different colored sapphires, which is something else I didn't know. Like I always thought they were blue, but you know, if it's like, I think most different forms of corundum that are colored are considered sapphires. And even in a clear form, it's only the red ones that are rubies for some reason. I mm-hmm. guess that's probably just historical. Yeah, probably. Like, that's why diamonds get coloured too. If you see a pink diamond, for example, from mm-hmm. Argyle, it's because mm-hmm. it has impurities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a blue diamond or a, you guys can get yellow and you get brown. Yeah. So just because other stuff snuck in, not just carbon, <laughs> the structure that's made of the colour. Yeah. So impurities make things pretty? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. And also very interesting scientifically, by the way. That's it. So, yeah. And... I'll, touch on that a bit more later but we'll get there um first i want to talk about how corundum is yeah a really hard mineral and not quite as hard as diamond which you know scores 10 on the the hardness scale corundum comes in at number at nine which is means it's harder than most minerals but you know diamond is still harder so the way Mm. this scale works is if you're higher on the scale you can scratch things that are lower so Mm. diamond wins diamond wins (laughs) um but there's not that much between corundum and diamond there's only like I looked at a big list of all the different minerals and yeah, very few things harder than sapphire except for diamond. So it's still pretty hard. So yeah. I, I rate it. Um, <laughs> on the Kai scale. On the Kai scale of, of you know, good minerals. Good. Like, yeah, I, I like that. But um, 
because it's so hard, it's often used in abrasives. So mm. actually, a lot of sandpaper is aluminium oxide sandpaper, mm. but that's crushed up corundum and not quite sapphires, not the, the gem <laughs> quality stuff, but um, I'd often heard a sandpaper referred to as emery paper. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't, what is emery paper? Like, why is there this, this different word? Sandpaper made sense. I'm like, yeah, it's like sand. Sand mm-hmm. is what it feels like. But emery, I, I didn't know what it was. Turns out that emery is another form of corundum that's like black and basically useless because no one thinks it's pretty. Yeah. It's like not, not transparent. It's like, you know, just this dark rock, essentially. And, you know, it might not look very good, but it is very hard. And mm-hmm. if you're trying to, Useful. you know, mm-hmm. wear something away, like it's great. So, <laughs> so we use um, diamond paste, yeah, like mushed up diamonds to make to grind our rocks down, and we also use aluminium oxide to polish them. Okay, so yeah. we've got to use this stuff to make our our samples shiny. We use other things like <laughs> use diamond, other rocks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do, if you get an ugly diamond, it gets crushed up and turned mm. into diamond paste or diamond mm. saw. We use diamond saws to yeah. cut rocks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's very cool. They have their uses, even if they're not beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, because I guess not all diamonds are pretty either. You That's right. Mm. Yeah. The, actually, they're very rare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I thought it's pretty cool that, you know, corundum is useful as an, as an abrasive. I also thought it was really interesting that it was first produced synthetically in 1837. Oh. So that's like yeah. almost 200 years ago wow. that they're creating synthetic like, crystal on purpose? Yeah. on purpose yeah so oh. they're like we're going to make we're going to make a s- synthetic sapphire and they managed to do it and well i think it was actually rubies in the first case that okay. they made so with the chromium impurities and it was red um but it wasn't quite gem quality when they first made it mm-hmm. like it didn't have the the nice transparency and you know obviously that's got to do with the way that the crystal is formed but it took about 40 more years before they could make you know synthetic rubies that were gem quality and mm. I didn't know that yeah well I thought it was really cool that they you know did that so long ago because now we hear about making synthetic diamonds and it's this you know whole big industry they use mm. synthetic diamonds for lots of scientific purposes as well but yeah that was much harder to make because diamonds require a lot more pressure and heat to make than you know apparently rubies do so they yeah. managed to make it a long time ago and it's really cool that they can make synthetic sapphire because you might have heard about it being used in phone screens. Oh, so like no. It's like a, an advertising thing like, oh, yeah, sapphire protected screen. And I'm like, okay. Oh, you that, can't break it. Yeah, apparently. so you can't mm-hmm. scratch it. Like, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that people really care about in their phone screens. Like you, right. if you put on a yeah. screen protector it's so you don't scratch your screen. It's like, well, if you make the screen out of sapphire, like, unless you're walking around with diamonds in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Yeah, so that makes it really, really strong. And the reason you can make a phone screen out of this crystal is because they can make it synthetically mm-hmm. and the process is quite you know, well-established and mm-hmm. works reasonably well, whereas diamond is still... Like, there's still a few limitations on how that they... The way that they make synthetic diamonds, so... Mm-hmm. So could you have, like, a ruby phone screen and it'd do, like, the same thing, but just... Just be red? Yeah. yeah. I guess if you want a red like a filter? screen... Yeah, yeah, well, like, you know, well, people, people do that. Um, you know, oh, like after as a, sunset, like a as a, yeah, as a blue light filter. Yeah. yeah, I guess if you could put up with it being red all Constantly, the time. Constantly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that's fine if if you yeah. if you don't want too much blue light, which you know is, is possibly could be good, but <laughs> color reproduction wouldn't be good. Your selfies might look a bit weird. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
that's that's really cool that you can make you know phone screens and screen protectors out of sapphire, which I think is is very cool. Um, but as we sort of touched on, the optical properties are pretty important. Like if your Ruby phone screen is going to you know only transmit red light, and that's not mm. very useful. And it turns out that sapphires actually transmit other wavelengths of light that we don't think about. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, infrared light can go through sapphire really easily. Uh, it turns out that glass is actually really good at blocking infrared light. Oh. Yeah. And I found that this out the hard way when I was trying to use a thermal camera to look at something through a glass window. Oh yeah, yeah. And I wanted to like see, you know, what if something was getting hot on the other side and normally mm. a thermal camera you point it at something hot and mm. you can see it's mm. like it's glowing hot. Mm. But if you've got a glass window in the way, oh, not too bad. Yeah. There you go. And it's really funny because looking through the glass window either looks like black because there's no infrared light getting through, mm. or it's just like a reflection. So oh. you can like see yourself in thermal camera oh, in the reflection of the glass. Which is pretty cool, but at the time it annoyed me because I couldn't actually <laughs> look at the thing I wanted to. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so actually, but they use, for this reason, they use sapphire lenses in thermal cameras. Right. Because if you use a glass lens, obviously yeah. it wouldn't work. So, mm. you know, grind a lens out of a piece of sapphire and you can make a thermal camera look at infrared light that would otherwise be blocked by glass. Mm. Um, but... True to form, the main reason I wanted to talk about sapphire and rubies is because they're used in lasers. I was going to ask, is it related <laughs> oh, <lasers>. to physics? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I quite like lasers. <laughs> and it turns out that the first laser ever was a ruby laser. Um. So they used a ruby crystal, and it was actually the chromium ion impurities that mm. make it be able to be a laser. Ooh. So that these impurities when they interact with the specific wavelength of light that works with this laser, they get excited. And when they de-excite, they you know, create more photons and give this amplification effect that you need for a laser. So some light goes in, it gets mm -hmm. amplified by the chromium ions in the mm -hmm. ruby, and then more light comes out the other end. And mm. that's cool. you know, yeah, it's very cool and a key thing in how lasers work. So yeah. I thought that was really cool. And these ha also had to be a synthetically grown ruby because they needed just the right concentration of right. chromium ions, wanted it to be a really nice crystal. And, you know, they had to cut the end on a certain angle so that the light reflected inside mm. just the right way. And, yeah, it's not just rubies now. More modern lasers use what's called titanium sapphire. So mm -hmm. that's sapphires with a bit of titanium in it. And, yeah, these are really cool because you can produce ultra-short pulses with these lasers. Like, I'm talking femtoseconds, which is, like, I don't know, what comes after a trillionth of a second? It's really small. <laughs> <laughs> really, really short amount of time. And, yeah, very cool. So what does that allow you to do? Um, so you can do some really interesting physics with ultra-short pulses. Mm -hmm. um, you can use it in things like timing. So you, a pulse of laser light is a really short amount of time mm. so you can mm. use that as a reference for something else right. and they actually use this in clocks so atomic clocks mm. use lasers and the interaction between lasers and atoms to get a really good reference of the time and I think that's really cool and not only this because you're using these titanium sapphire lasers to get really good references of time but you can also use sapphire oscillators which is basically a tuning fork made out of sa sapphire Oh. And you cool it down really cold, and you can also get 
really good time signals from this you know tuning fork because it, it resonates at a particular frequency mm. so yeah i think sapphires are pretty cool and yeah it's a pretty cool rock yeah some fun facts i enjoyed that <laughs> <laughs> well um you know we we loved all these rock facts but um you know what we also love well i love rock and roll so we're gonna <laughs> <laughs> play you out with i love rock and roll by joan jett and black hearts but um don't forget that you can catch us on twitter at radio silence and listen to all of our previous episodes everywhere that you find podcasts see you next week <laughs>